and welcome back for another episode of Ninja Nerd. Today we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease or IBD and we're really going to be talking about differentiating between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Again guys go ahead and check out ninjanerd.org. It's our website. Go ahead and grab some notes, illustrations, follow along with us. We hope you keep learning as much as you possibly can and we're going to really try and boil this lecture down today and it's very high yield important information. Uh, so uh, buckle up. <laughs> Buckle up, baby. Exactly. Yeah. So when we talk about Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, I think it's important to be able to differentiate these. Oftentimes, it's important to remember people can have both of these. It'd be a terrible day, but you can have both of these types of inflammatory bowel disease. Oftentimes, they can kind of coexist. But when we talk about these in a perfect world, especially for your exams, how do we kind of like differentiate these based upon like pathophysiology and a couple other kind of things like their clinical manifestations, et cetera? So Pathophysiologically, Crohn's disease is typically mediated by a dysfunctional pathway, particularly between uh, the TH17 cells and a very important cytokine called interleukin-23. And what this has been shown to cause is some type of immune reaction that leads to a massive inflammation and destruction of the uh, mucosa, submucosa, the muscularis external, all the way down to almost like the serosa layer uh, in different parts of the GIT in Crohn's disease. Whereas in ulcerative colitis, this is primarily mediated by what's called your T helper 2 cells. And again, these can also cause ulcerative lesions that usually involve specific parts of the GIT, but kind of only involve like the mucosa, submucosa, and maybe a little bit of the muscularis externa, but that's pretty much their primary areas. I think the next thing that's important to remember here for these patients when it comes to kind of like their clinical features, which includes like, I know this sounds very odd and disgusting, but What's their frequency and what kind of like defecations, like our bowel movements are they having? Um, what's their nutritional status? Um, what's their physical exam look like? Does they have any like very interesting extra intestinal manifestations besides involvement of the GIT? Do they have any other organs that are involved? And then other associated complications, especially cancer. So let's talk about that. Crohn's disease, first thing, I think it's important to remember that they have a very increased frequency. They're pooping a lot, okay? Uh, but also sometimes they may experience constipation, and this is primarily due to an obstruction from like a stenotic lesion. So if they have a lot of inflammation, Sometimes it can cause like a stenotic portion of a part of the GIT and can potentially cause an obstruction, but oftentimes they usually have very significant frequency um, with their defecations. Also, it's not bloody. Key big, big word here, non-bloody, more of a watery diarrhea for these patients with Crohn's disease. If it's very, very severe, there may be some blood, but primarily I want you to remember Crohn's disease, increased frequency of bowel movements, non-bloody, they are watery, and again, they may have constipation, but this is if they develop like an actual stenotic lesion um, that actually causes an obstruction to the actual poop moving along, okay? The ulcerative colitis, they have extremely increased frequency of their bowel movements. Sometimes, this may sound terrible, imagine how sore their bunghole must be, but more than 10 times a day. And that's very, very common and sometimes pathognomonic of ulcerative colitis. Big thing to remember, it is bloody diarrhea and has mucus and sometimes, this may sound disgusting, but even some tissue-like appearance of it as well. So that's big thing. So for Crohn's, non-bloody, watery, increased frequency. For ulcerative colitis, 10 times or more a day, bloody, mucusy, and it's painful. So they have tenesmus. So they kind of have like this very significant pain during their actual defecation process. And sometimes they feel like they have to keep going because they're pooping 10 times a day. So there's a lot of urgency along. The other thing I think is important is because Crohn's disease involves the small intestine, you have issues where you're a difficulty being able to absorb nutrients. Obviously, a lot of fats and carbohydrates and amino acids that are needed 
needed for growth. So if Crohn's disease involves the small intestine, but ulcerative colitis does not involve the small intestine, what would you see within the respect to the nourishment, their muscle mass, et cetera? I would see that patients with Crohn's disease are going to be more like poorly malnourished. They're going to be malnourished. So their nutritional status is going to be very, very poor. They may have certain types of like uh, abnormalities within their met- metabolic system. Whereas with ulcerative colitis, they don't usually involve the small intestine. So because of that, they don't really have any like malnutritional disorders. The other thing that's important for Crohn's disease is that physical exam wise, their pain typically just because it's very, very common to occur in this area, loves to leave, like usually localize to the right lower quadrant. So if patients with Crohn's disease, I want you to remember right lower quadrant pain. What's a differential diagnosis, Rob, for uh, having like a right lower quadrant pain? Let's see if you guys if you remember this from PT school. <laughs> Acute appendicitis. Oh! Maybe. All right. Nice. What's up with it? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> but yeah, definitely think about that. If a patient has Crohn's disease and they got that right lower quadrant tenderness, make sure that you also think could it be an appendicitis? It What's that? Uh, uh, McBurney's point, right? <laughs> yeah. You do have like the McBurney's point. Oh man, he's just going all out here. I'm going all out. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer. <laughs> that's right. Also assess, is there any kind of like palpable abdominal masses? Do they have any low grade fevers? Because that's also pretty common symptoms that you can see with Crohn's disease. With ulcerative colitis, they usually have pain in their left lower quadrant. Hey, Rob, what kind of uh, thing did they have for, what's a common differential diagnosis for left lower quadrant? Uh, I'm going to have to say diverticulosis. Oh, uh, diverticulitis. Place, place, yeah, place. You're, good, you're good, baby. Yeah, I, I basically had it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But same kind of thing here. Definitely consider that as a potential differential. Painful defecation. Remember I told you that they have tenesmus, they have abdominal cramps, they have tenderness. And again, because they could be losing like particular like volume in this area, think about tachycardia, think about hypotension, especially orthostasis. Definitely think about that as well. I think the next thing to think about with Crohn's versus ulcerative is the extra intestinal manifestation. So besides them causing, you know, bloody, like non-bloody watery diarrhea in Crohn's or bloody painful diarrhea in ulcerative colitis, right lower quadrant for Crohn's, left lower quadrant for ulcerative, what are some extra intestinal involvement? So you can actually get kidney stones in Crohn's disease. And this is oftentimes due to alterations within the calcium uh, within the bloodstream. So sometimes they can have a lot of these oxalate molecules that accumulate within inside of the blood and then the kidney tubules and cause these calcium oxalate stones. The other thing is it alters the actual lipid absorption because it's involved in the small intestine. It can alter the lipid absorption and bile absorption. And this can lead to cholelithiasis. Whereas an ulcerative colitis, they can develop this kind of autoimmune reaction where they attack their actual biliary ducts and cause something called primary sclerosing cholangitis. So important to remember that. But all of these, both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, extra intestinally can have somewhat of a similar manifestations. They can really affect the skin and cause this really nasty looking lesion called pyoderma gangrenosum. Another one is they can cause they like nodules within the subcutaneous tissue called erythema nodosum. They can affect the eyes and cause kind of like visual changes and pain such as uveitis and episcleritis. They can cause like these nasty little canker sores within the mouth like aptus stomatitis. And then they can also kind of affect the joints and lead to joint pain uh, like spondylitis and peripheral arthritis I think is another one to remember. Uh, the other thing for complications here is fistulas. Which one of these can actually form fistulas? So basically, a fistula is whenever you're connecting like a part of the GIT to maybe another organ. In this case, maybe you actually have a connection between the GIT to the bladder, so an enterovesicular fistula, or between parts of the bowel, so an enteroenteric fistula, or between that and the skin, and you have an enterocutaneous fistula. Could you imagine, dude, like if you had like an enterovesicular fistula, like 
poop coming out, you know, through it's, the it, bladder. It, it really is. It, these diseases are, they're crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's terrible. It really is. I mean, it's honestly like it is, it's a terrible thing to imagine that that can happen. But I think that's another important thing to remember is if you see like, yeah, this sounds weird, but like you see like feces coming out through the actual, like, you know, urine to consider things like a potentially like some type of fistula there yeah. or like pneumaturia, just right. because you definitely have an increased risk of UTIs of bacteria just like flooding into your, your bladder from your actual GIT. So that's a big thing to think about. Fistulas aren't really common with ulcerative colitis, just because if you think about in order to have a fistula, you have to almost go through all of the layers um, of the GIT, like the alimentary canal. And so Crohn's disease goes all the way down to the serosa. Ulcerative colitis doesn't actually extend that far down. So that's why you get fistulas more commonly with Crohn's disease. You don't get that with ulcerative colitis. Other complications is because abscesses. Abscesses are really common with Crohn's disease and strictures. So remember I told you if you get like a really like a stenotic lesion of the actual small intestine or large intestine, depending upon where it is, because Crohn's disease can actually affect like anywhere, um, you can actually get like an obstruction or a narrowing of the actual GIT lumen, which alters the movement of food or feces through that area. And that can definitely cause an obstruction. Abscess is a big one. And then fissures, they can actually cause a lot of perianal fissures. So don't forget that as well. With ulcerative colitis, because these primarily affect like the sigmoid colon, the distal, like pretty much the descending colon, I'd say primarily sigmoid and rectum, they can really cause a massive inflammation of that area to the point where you can actually cause like a fulminant colitis. They're having like massive bowel movements, like insanely large amounts of bowel movements. And then they actually can even become like toxic megacolon to where this is like a massive, massive colon at high risk of perforation, rupture, and it can even lead to significant hypotension and sepsis. And then obviously perforation. So I remember for ulcerative colitis, remember fulminant colitis, toxic megacolon with a high risk of perforation. Whereas with Crohn's, abscesses, strictures, and then perianal fissures. The other thing is that both of these conditions are extremely associated with uh, cancer. Um, they have a high risk due to, due to the underlying pathology and Guess what you treat these patients with? Immunosuppressants. So you definitely increase the risk of cancer as well with that. But generally Crohn's disease, there has been a, a somewhat of an association between like uh, cancers of the small intestine. But I would say the most important one to remember here is ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis has an extremely higher risk of colorectal cancer in comparison to Crohn's disease. So if you ask the question on the exam, which one of these two diseases have a higher risk of colorectal cancer, you need to say ulcerative colitis is an extremely high risk of colorectal cancer, both of them in general, but way higher with ulcerative colitis. And then cholangiocarcinomas, so carcinomas that are involved in the biliary tract can also occur with ulcerative colitis. So the other thing I would actually, you know, urge you to potentially remember for your exam, I don't think there is a diagnostic utility as compared to like your colonoscopy, but Something to think about. Sometimes they may ask you, like, which of the following antibodies are present in Crohn's disease versus in ulcerative colitis. It's important to remember that Piankas are pretty common in ulcerative colitis. Thus is why they actually see this in primary sclerosis and cholangitis, and you don't see that in Crohn's disease. Whereas Crohn's disease, I can't say that I've ever heard of this or I haven't seen this test done before, but it's called the anti-saccharomyces cerevisiae antibodies, or the ASCA antibodies. These may be positive, particularly in Crohn's disease. But again, I don't think these are a super high utility, so I wouldn't waste too much brain space on these. But that covers kind of like the aspect of that, Rob, between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis with respect to a lot of the patho, the clinical features, and some cancer risk and things like that. Okay, great. That means we're going to be moving on to a lot more of the, the diagnostic findings like endoscopy, imaging, really figuring out to break this down based upon location, pattern of inflammation, 
typical diagnostic findings, and then histology. Zach, go ahead. Take it away. Awesome. So you take the camera, you show it up the rectum, and then you go through and look at the different parts of the colon and the small intestine. Whenever you do that, you take a look at these things. How would you be able to identify the differences based on what Rob said, location, pattern of inflammation, typical diagnostic findings, and then the histology if you take a biopsy between Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So location, it's really important to remember this one. I, I, I can't stress this enough. It's the most important thing probably when it comes to this on the exam is Crohn's disease is very common going to involve the terminal ilium and the ascending colon. And it may even go to the actual transverse and descending colon, but it never, ever hits the rectum. That's important to remember. So whenever you have a patient who has Crohn's disease, it'll likely always spare the rectum, but it can affect anywhere along the GIT except for one part. And that area is the rectum. For ulcerative colitis, this primarily only involves the rectum and the sigmoid colon, maybe the descending colon. It may start kind of edging into the transverse colon as well, but primarily it's rectum, sigmoid, descending, and then maybe a little bit into the transverse colon. But that would primarily be that important thing to extremely important thing to remember there. I think the other thing is, is the pattern of inflammation. So obviously we see that, you know, Crohn's going to occur anywhere except for the rectum, but it's usually scattered. So it's kind of like you'll have an area of inflammation and, and ulcerative lesions and then an area of normal tissue, then an area of ulcerative lesions and then an area of normal tissue. And so these are called your skip lesions. And you usually see this in Crohn's disease. Whereas in someone who has ulcerative colitis, if you go and you work your way from the rectum and you work up the sigmoid colon, you work up the descending colon, guess what? There's all ulcerations throughout the entire length of that portion there. So it's very continuous. The next thing is if you actually take a look um, at the actual tissue as you're running up through the colonoscopy, if you have a patient who has like this like cobblestoning kind of appearance or like these serpiginous ulcerations or small aptus ulcerations, that's a pretty common thing for Crohn's disease. Whereas with ulcerative colitis, you see a lot of mucosal ulcerations and like a very friable mucosa. So that's really, really important. I'd say if you also consider getting like a CT of the abdomen, if you get like a CT of the abdomen, sometimes, or even an MRI, you can actually see this something called a creep fat sign, um, or sometimes if you do something called um, a barium, a barium test where you actually have them um, ingest some barium and it runs through their actual GIT, you may see something called a string sign um, in a patient who has Crohn's disease. Whereas if you do that in a patient who has ulcerative colitis, you see like this, not even kidding, it like looks like a, there's like no haustra anymore. You lose it. And so it looks like a lead pipe. So whenever you're doing kind of like a barium test there, uh, like a barium with x-ray there of the abdomen, you can see a creeping fat or a particularly a string sign in those with Crohn's disease, and you see a um, lead pipe sign, particularly in those with ulcerative colitis. The next thing is if you biopsy the tissue and you take a look at the tissue under the microscope and patients with Crohn's disease, remember I told you it pretty much goes almost throughout the entire length of the alimentary canal. So it's called transmural inflammation. You see a lot of non-caseating granulomas, whereas with ulcerative colitis, it's usually only involves the mucosa submucosa. It doesn't really go beyond that. All right, so we've gotten to this point. We've gotten pretty far. We have a really good foundation about Crohn's disease versus ulcerative colitis. Let's talk now about treatment. How do we treat these patients and really help to improve their quality of life? Yeah, so when we talk about a patient, like medical therapy, kind of in a stepwise sequence for patients who have like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, Let's start with Crohn's disease. So generally, it's important to be able to kind of classify, like, what kind of category do you put them in? Are they mild, mild to moderate, moderate to severe? Are they in, like, a refractory case? So oftentimes, when a patient has kind of a mild Crohn's disease, they don't have a lot of the complications associated with it. It's not severe lesions that you see. 
you can start them off on something called 5-ASA. This is basically just sulfasalazine, and it's pretty useful in being able to kind of induce remission. And sometimes you can also consider antibiotics, so like something like fluoroquinolones and, and metronidazole. Uh, this is generally helpful for especially any of the complications that they may have, like the pyogenic complications like fistulas or perianal diseases. If they have more mild to moderate disease, so you put them on 5-ASA plus or minus antibiotics, and they're still kind of not better, then you can add on something called oral budesonide. And this is actually able to kind of reach the ileum in pretty well and kind of provide some good reduction in inflammation. If after 5-ASA and budesonide, they're still not actually good, then what you can do is you can actually really try to induce remission. Don't keep it as maintenance, but if they're kind of that moderate to severe category, you can put them on something called PO prednisone um, and generally just give them a pretty decent dose, like 40 to 60 milligrams. Um, the other thing that you can do after you put them on the pioprednisone for more of kind of a maintenance therapy would be something like azathioprine or 6-mecaptopurine or methotrexate. So again, that's how I would start it off. So mild 5-ASA sulfasalazine, plus or minus an antibiotic if they have a pyogenic complication. If that's not working, add on oral budesonide. If that's not working, then start pioprednisone. And then do that to get them into remission and then maintenance therapy with azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine or methotrexate. Then if after that, they're still in severe or refractory Crohn's disease, then you're getting into some really powerful like anti like antibody-like drugs. And so this is where you start getting into what's called the anti-TNF antibodies, like infliximab, adalimumab. So these would be things that I would start potentially adding on and then checking like a trough level and an anti-infliximab antibody as well. So that would be one. And then if that's not working, you can even consider things like vedolizumab or ustekinumab. So vedolizumab is an anti-alpha-4, beta-7 anti-integrin. And then ustekinumab is an anti-interleukin-12-23 inhibitor. And usually you'll add these on if they're refractory to the TNF-alpha inhibitors. So again, to recap, sulfasalazine first, plus or minus antibiotics. That doesn't work. Oral budesonide, if that doesn't work, pioprednisone to get them into remission. And then after that, um, go ahead and start maintenance azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine or methotrexate. If that's not working, TNF-alpha inhibitors. If that's not working, vedolizumab or ustekinumab would be for the Crohn's disease. For a patient who has ulcerative colitis, it's kind of a similar therapy. So you start off with sulfasalazine for the mild ulcerative colitis. And then from there, if that's not working, you add on budesonide, but it's kind of like an interesting combo. It's like a multi-matrix budesonide that we add on and it's supposed to be able to hopefully like reduce a lot of the systemic adverse effects. But again, same thing like you see with Crohn's, always with a 5-ASA uh, or the sulfasalazine, then the budesonide, but it's a multi-matrix. If that's not working, same thing, prednisone to try to be able to get them to go into remission and then maintain the actual remission with azathioprine or 6-mercaptopurine. We don't use methotrexate and UC. If that's not working and they're still in severe or refractory uh, UC, then we can do something called IV steroids. So this is like hydrocortisone or methylprednisolone, like, you know, decent doses of these um, to try to be able to get them into remission. And then after that, we'll switch them over to the maintenance, which is going to be something like cyclosporin or TNF-alpha inhibitors. And if they're refractory to that, vedolizumab. So again, you can kind of see a similarity between these always is sulfasalazine, budesonide, pioprednisone to get them in remission if that's not working. Then if you get them in remission, maintenance with azathioprine, 6-mercaptopurine, methotrexate for Crohn's. If that doesn't work, 
for ulcerative colitis, you do IV steroids. And if that doesn't work, you do TNF-alpha inhibitors for both of them, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And if that doesn't work, vedolizumab or ustekinumab for Crohn's disease. Now, let's say that you've performed all of this medical therapy and the dang thing's still not working. What can you do? Well, guess what? If you have ulcerative colitis, there is somewhat of a benefit. It's a terrible thing, but you can do a proctocolectomy. You can actually remove the disease portion of the colon, and that would be the curative thing. But for Crohn's disease, this is unfortunately not curative, but sometimes may become absolutely necessary to, you know, alleviate some of the very complicated symptoms that these patients have with uh, Crohn's disease, like strictures and a lot of problems with that because they're probably needing to get consistent like dilation or surgery and um, a lot of those things. So I think it might be something to consider if you have to for refractory Crohn's disease, but more particularly for symptoms, not curative. But that's pretty much it for IBD, Rob. All right, Zach, thank you again for your time. That was awesome. Another really awesome episode for the Ninja Nerd Podcast. Um, That's all I got. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no problem, man. And uh, thank you guys for always listening, for being so awesome. And, uh, you know, as always, thank you for being awesome, Ninja Nerds. Love you. Thank you. Until next time. Mm